Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 16 is where I would like to direct your attention this morning. We're going to start reading from verse 15 in just a moment. And I would like you to have your Bibles open as we approach uh, that moment in uh, time this morning. 2 Samuel 16, and we're going to start in verse 15 in just a couple of moments. When God created the universe, he wove into the very fabric of the world an irrefutable law that the Apostle Paul wrote, summarized in Galatians chapter 6, when he said, you reap what you sow. God made the world that way. It just works life. It's a law that's well known. It's a law that's pretty easy to understand. And it's a law that we don't like very much except when it happens to people that we don't like. Then we like it a lot. In fact, the way Paul wrote about this law, he seems to think that uh, we live in denial about it. Remember what he said? He was pretty harsh. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. You reap what you sow. And you read that and you say, okay, Paul, I got it. All right, all right. Uh, Listen to what C.S. Lewis wrote about in Mere Christianity, wrote in Mere Christianity. Every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole with all your innumerable choices, I'll pause here. I read this week that in your lifetime you make 1,700,000 choices. Taking your life as a whole with all your innumerable choices, All your life long, you are slowly turning the central thing that is part of you either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish hellish creature. Either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven. That is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us, at each moment, is progressing to one state or the other. You reap what you sow. 2005, two years after he retired, Bill Romanowski uh, sat down for an interview with 60 Minutes. Uh, Bill Romanowski uh, retired in 2003 from a 16-year career with the NFL, and when he was on the field, he was known as a vicious player. He um, took cheap hits, he raged on the field, he broke his opponent's bones, uh, he injured other players, he seemed to love that. Uh, And during the off-season, he would get ready for next year's punishment by uh, obsessively weight training and taking steroids. Well, he was... Um, swept up in the the Balco uh, controversy um, and uh, went public after he was discovered. During his career, he he suffered between uh, eight eight and 20 concussions. And uh, by the end of his career, he couldn't see straight or balance. He had headaches, he had nausea. Uh, Doctors said that in in his life, he he showed profound uh, mental uh, deficits. This is what he said to 60 Minutes. I'll read this line from him. I compromised my morality to get ahead. 
to play another year, to play two more years, to win another Super Bowl. But worse than the physical pain was the embarrassment to my family and friends, to teammates, team owners, and the league. That hurt. And ultimately, a little boy, his own son, and ultimately a little boy that looks up to his dad and said, Dad, do you do drugs? And that one hurt me more than anything. I don't like it very much. Part of me doesn't like it very much, but it's true, and it's just you reap what you sow. Uh, for several weeks, we have been reading about what Israel's king David uh, reaped from the period of time when he walked in rebellion with God. It started with adultery, and then in order to cover up his adultery, he resorted to murder. And I, I, we have been reading these passages, these chapters, and I am occasionally perplexed by this, why, why does the author of Samuel focus so much attention on these events? David's fall and David's consequence. Do you ever wonder why there's so much specificity and so much detail, so long? Why are these stories so long? It's a good question to ask, uh, actually. If you're a Bible reader, the technical term for what I'm talking about here is narrative selectivity. Impressive word, phrase, narrative selectivity. Of all the things that David knows about the events that he could have recorded about David, all the things he knows about David's life, all the stories that he could have told, why did the author spend so much time here? For example, David's life, I would have liked to know the details about how he attacked and killed that lion and the bear when he was a teenager, teenage shepherd. Wouldn't you like to know more about that? We don't know hardly anything about it. Just mentioned in bypass. In bypass, but all this, there's all these details. Why is this so long? Why are we focused so much? This is the microscope section of Samuel. There's the telescope sections. This is the microscope section. I actually have hope to answer that question in, in part at least this morning uh, by the time we're finished running through this, this story of what happened in Jerusalem while David was on the run from Absalom. He, he's running from his traitorous son, Absalom. Absalom is leading this rebellion against his father. And I want to show you, we're going to walk through this, I want to show you how the laws of sowing and reaping work themselves out in this passage. That's actually how we're going to proceed. Uh, three ways that sowing and reaping works in 2 Samuel 16 and 17. And God has a reason for us to look at this in such detail, to know this story, because he wants you to consider how the laws of sowing and reaping work in your life. Let's begin here. Number one, uh, sowing and reaping. When you sow rebellion, you reap chaos. That's the first thing we're going to talk about in this passage. When you sow rebellion against God, you reap chaos. It's a principle that applies to both father and son, to both David and to his son Absalom. So let, let's read here. Second Samuel 16, verse 15. Meanwhile, David's running... Now we go back to Absalom in the city. Meanwhile, Absalom and all the men of Israel came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel, that wise counselor, was with him. Then Hushai, the archite, David's confidant, went to Absalom and said to him, Long live the king! Long live the king! Absalom said to Hushai, So this is your love. This is the love. Your translation might say loyalty. That's our great Hebrew word, chesed, covenant faithfulness. 
So this is the love you show your friend. If he's your friend, why didn't you go out with him? If you're David's friend, why are you, why are you here and not with him? And Hushai said to Absalom, no, the one chosen by the Lord, by these people and by all the men of Israel, this I, his I will be, and I will remain with him. Furthermore, whom should I serve? Should I not serve the son? Just as I served your father, so I will also serve you. Well, do you remember Hushai? Hushai is David's friend. He's been David's friend for a long time. And when David was fleeing from Jerusalem, Hushai was there ready to go with him. And David said to Hushai, Hushai, you will serve me best by going back to Jerusalem and trying to confuse the wise counsel of Ahithophel. You're going to appreciate Hushai. Did you notice the, the dialogue that takes place that Hushai never uses names? Hushai is a spy. He's not Absalom's friend. He's David's friend. So knowing that, who do you think he's talking about when he says, long live the king, long live the king? Who's he really talking about? And in verse 18, when he says, I will be the one who is chosen by the Lord by these, I I will be with the one who is chosen by the Lord by these people and by all the men of Israel. Who do you think he's talking about? Hmm, isn't that interesting? Uh, Hushai's sly. And Absalom should have been suspicious of him. He should have been suspicious. Absalom is vain enough to think that Hushai is speaking about him. That's what Absalom thinks. He's the only king that matters, of course. So when Hushai says, long live the king, he has to be saying, long live King Absalom. That's, that's what Absalom thinks, at, le- at least. But, but uh, Absalom should have been suspicious when as Hushai throws this sun line back at him. So Absalom says to Hushai, you're not very loyal to your friend David. And then Hushai says to him in verse 19, aren't you the son? I'm going to talk about who's being a traitor here. You're the son. You should be loyal, not me. Well, that's the undercurrent. Of the conversation. But Absalom, his head is so big, his ears must be closed because he's not listening. Now, let's keep reading here, verse 20. Absalom said to Ahithophel, Ahithophel, the wise counselor who has betrayed David and is joining Absalom, Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give us your advice. What should we do? Ahithophel answered, Sleep with your father's concubines, whom he left to take care of the palace. Then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself obnoxious to your father, and the hands of everyone, will, uh, everyone with you will be more resolute. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and he slept with his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now in those days, the advice Ahithophel gave was like that of one who inquires of God. That was how David and Absalom regarded all of Ahithophel's advice. Everyone listens to Ahithophel. He is the E.F. Hutton of the Old Testament. You have to be of a certain age to get that reference, all right? So the people around you who chuckled are old. Just know that. So So here's Ahithophel's advice. What do you think of Ahithophel's advice? Uh, It's brutal, isn't it? It's cold. It's calculating. It's very shrewd. Ahithophel knew that a number of people in Jerusalem must have wondered about this rebellion that Absalom was leading. Is Absalom just on a teenage tiff, or does he really mean it? 
Has Absalom done the equivalent of packing his bags like a little child? I'm going to leave from home. I'm running away, but who never actually gets off the block? Is that what Absalom is doing? Or does Absalom really mean it? And Ahithophel's advice is to uh, uh, make a very clear statement. By sleeping with his father's concubines, he is claiming the throne and he's making reconciliation with David impossible. If anyone had doubts about how serious Absalom is, this display removed all doubt. It is also one of the most significant moments, if not the most significant moment, when David reaps what he has sown. They pitch this tent on the same roof from which David looked down and first lusted after Bathsheba. From that roof, David stood and he took the wife of a man to whom he owed loyalty. And and here, in that very place, his wives are stolen from him and forced into another man's bed. It's a very clear fulfillment of what Nathan the prophet had said to David in 2 Samuel chapter 12. I wrote the verses down. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. It is harvest time for David. He is reaping what he sowed. It's interesting how clear the scripture is about this. God says, I am going to do this. I am going to do this. This is a law that he built into the universe, but he is going to fulfill it. He's going to, he's going to enforce it. From one angle, I suppose, if you were reading this book and, and without God at all, you, you might think that some of what David is experiencing is just natural or just normal, just understandable. Uh, I mean, after his sin with Bathsheba, he was so morally compromised that he never disciplined his son Amnon for his sin. He never rebuked Absalom for murder. And and these lapses are coming to full flower. You might think that it's just, well, this is just naturally working out. But God takes full credit for this. This is a law that I wrote. This is a law that I am enforcing. David, you are going to reap what you have sown. In his book, uh, Sacred Marriage, Gary Thomas writes about a woman named Marie Dajou. She uh, left her children in the 1800s, a couple hundred years ago. She left her children to follow after, because she had a crush on him, the most famous composer in the world at the time. His name was Franz Liszt. And and she was just infatuated with him, and she followed it, left her home and followed after him. And and one day after her infatuation cooled, she realized what, what she'd done, and she supposedly made this observation. When one has smashed everything around oneself, one has also smashed oneself. You reap what you sow. I think that's why this, one of the reasons is this story is told with such exacting detail is so that we would learn this. So that we would learn to loathe our own rebellion and the destructive power that it brings. Look what this has done to David. David's story falls into the pattern of the great falls in the Bible. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve fall. They sin and they're sent out of the Garden of Eden, banished from God's presence. At the end of 
kings at the end of Chronicles, the nation of Israel has turned their back on God's covenant and God disciplines them and they're banished from the land, carried off into exile. And here in 2 Samuel, David is on the run because of his great sin. He's been banished from the city of Jerusalem. This is supposed to make you shudder. It's supposed to make you cry out to God that he would spare you from this. Deliver me from evil. Keep me from walking down this path. It's supposed to make you turn from seeing all the things that other people do. And you can't. You can't. Because God says no. And (sighs) it's supposed to make you turn from resenting what you can't do to gratitude for what God warns you about. It's supposed to make you reach out and stop your friends from doing something terrible like this. Like your mother when she slams on the brakes in the car. Don't go down that path. It's terrible. It's terrible things that happen. God, keep us from this terrible path in our church. Keep us from fornication. Keep us from adultery. Keep us from the terrible deception and plotting that are necessary to cover our own sins. Brothers and sisters, don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. You will reap what you sow. If it can happen to David, even to great David, how do you imagine that you are going to escape? What sort of future are you building with the decisions that you are making today? Right now, if if David can't escape, you are not the exception. Now, I said this this principle here of of you you sow rebellion or reap uh, chaos applies to both David and Absalom. What Absalom does in this passage is so loathsome, so obviously forbidden in the law, this sleeping with his father's wives, Uh, that God will see to it that his reign ends before it even begins. Actually, we're going to talk about how he does that. Look at chapter 17. We'll start reading in verse 1. Here's some more advice from Ahithophel. Ahithophel said to Absalom, I would choose 12,000 men and set out tonight in pursuit of David. I would attack him while he is weary and weak. I would strike him with terror, and then all the people with him will flee. I would strike down only the king... And bring all the people back to you. The death of the man you seek will mean the return of all. All the people will be unharmed. This plan seemed good to Absalom and to all the the elders of Israel. So Absalom's uh, war council thinks that this is a good idea. What do you think about Absalom's plan now? Uh, Ahithophel's plan now. Uh, Absalom followed the first bit of his advice. Now we have a second plan about what he's supposed to do. What Absalom, what Ahithophel is going to do. Uh, what do you think about this advice? Then, uh, I'll show you in a minute. The narrator of, of 2 Samuel actually thinks it's good advice. It is ruthless, just like his first bit of advice. With overwhelming force, 12,000 troops, outnumbering David, perhaps 10 to 1, and the element of surprise, Ahithophel advises a strategic strike. One target, David, Go after one target, David. Now, isn't it interesting? David, when he was trying to cover up his sin with his adultery with Bathsheba, his advice to Joab was, isolate Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, isolate Uriah from the troops and kill him. 
And now Ahithophel says to Absalom, here's what you need to do. You need to isolate David from his troops and then kill him. Very strategic strike. You should ask yourself, you should wonder at this point in time, do you remember uh, when David was uh, running from Saul, how careful he was not to hurt Saul at all? Who am I to touch the Lord's anointed? Ahithophel does not have that same feeling. Go kill him. Kill him, Absalom. Right now, you've got to go. And now comes Hushai's advice. Hushai has an alternate plan. He needs to, this is a strange, it's a worse plan, and he knows it's a worse plan, but he has to make it sound like it's a better plan. Uh, Warren Wearsby pointed out one way he does it. We're going to look at all the images that, that Hushai uses. Ahithophel's advice is very plain, very flat, very straight. Hushai is imaginative and creative, and he's appealing to Absalom in all kinds of ways. Uh, it's not good advice, but it's a really well-told story. Uh, l- l- verse 5. But Absalom said, Summon also Hushai the archite, so we can hear what he has to say as well. When Hushai came to Absalom, uh, when Hushai came to him, Absalom said, Ahithophel has given us this advice. Should we do what he says? If not, give us your opinion. Hushai replied to Absalom, Oh, the advice Ahithophel has given is not good this time. You know your father and his men, they are fighters. And as fierce as a wild bear robbed of her cubs. Besides, your father's an experienced fighter. He will not spend the night with the troops. Even now he's hidden in a cave or some other place. If you should attack your troops first, whoever hears about it will say, there has been a slaughter among the troops who follow Absalom. Then even the bravest soldier whose heart is like the heart of a lion will melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a fighter and that those with him are brave. So, I advise you, Let all Israel from Dan to Beersheba, as numerous as the sand on the seashore, be gathered with you, with you yourself leading them into battle. Then we will attack him wherever he may be found, and we will fall on him as dew settles on the ground. Neither he nor any of his men will be left alive. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city, and we will drag it down to the valley until not so much as a pebble is left. All right, now, what do you think of Hushai's advice here. Ahithophel advises an immediate surgical strike. Uh, Hushai advised delay and very broad war. Let's slaughter all of them. But what Hushai has going for him is that he appeals to Absalom's vanity. This pretend king is vain. And Hushai says, you should go out and lead all of the troops in glorious battle. Never let it be said that your troops have lost. You should go, and it'll be great. You, you, everyone in the whole world will think that you're wonderful uh, w- when you're leading your troops. See this appeal that, that push, and boy, Absalom swallows it, hook, line, and sinker. Uh, Hushai's uh, plan is not very good, but verse 14 tells us something very interesting. It's rare theological analysis. Hushai's plan is going to be adopted because God will see to it that it is. Uh, Look at this text here. God has chosen sides. Verse 14. Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the advice of Hushai the archite is better than that of Ahithophel, for the Lord had determined to frustrate the good advice 
of Ahithophel in order to bring disaster on Absalom. God acts and God has chosen sides. Now, we're going to talk about that a little bit more, but the next scene reminds us again or proves to us or shows us again that God has chosen sides. Remember how I've talked about how narratives, sometimes it takes them chapters to make one point. Well, I'm going to read the next seven verses and the point of it is God has chosen sides. But let's read the story anyway. Verse 15. Hushai told Zadok and Abiathar the priests, Ahithophel has advised Absalom and all the elders of Israel to do such and such, and such but I have advised them to do so and so. The text is so specific there. Verse 16. Now send a message at once and tell David, do not spend the night at the fords in the wilderness. Cross over without fail, or the king and all the people with him will be swallowed up. Jonathan and Ahmaz were staying at Enrogel. A female servant was to go and inform them, and they were to go and tell King David, for they could not risk being seen entering the city, the spies, the two spies. But a young man saw them and told Absalom. So the two of them left at once and went to the house of a man in Bahurim. He had a well in his courtyard, and they climbed down into it. His wife took a covering and spread it over the opening of the well and scattered grain over it. No one knew anything about it. When Absalom's men came to the woman at the house, they asked, Where are Hamaz and Jonathan? The woman answered them, They crossed over the brook. The men searched but found no one, so they returned to Jerusalem. Uh, Verse 21 After they had gone, the two climbed out of the well and went to inform King David. They said to him, Set out and cross the river at once. Ahithophel has advised such and such against you. So David and all the people with him set out and crossed the Jordan. By daybreak, no one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. uh, Okay, here we go. Two people, two spies in a city going to warn Israelites, hiding under grain. Does that remind you of any story in the Bible? Should remind you of Jericho. Caleb and Joshua, hiding under grain. They were the spies in the city of Jericho. And, and uh, um, they were hidden by Rahab. So uh, in this, now, now we take 2 Samuel 17 and we place it over our understanding of that story from the book of Joshua. And uh, uh, what we have here is God choosing sides. He's on the side of the Israelites in Joshua. He's on the side of David in this story. Um, David is just like Joshua and the uh, Absalom is just like the king of uh, the king of um, uh, Jericho. That's the point of that, that whole that whole story. God is accomplishing His purposes. God has chosen sides, and God is working in the mind and heart of Absalom to bring about Absalom's fall. I wonder if the God that you worship would ever do something like this. Does the God you worship work like this in people's minds and hearts to bring about their destruction? Um, do you remember what happened to uh, Eli's son at the beginning of Samuel? That verse, First uh, Samuel 2.25, Eli warned his sons about the choices of their choices they were making, the consequences of the choices they were making. And the text says, His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. There's a question that has divided followers of Jesus for hundreds of years. Here's one way to put that question. Do people do, basically, do they do what they want to do? Or do people do what God wants them to do? Do people do, do they act 
according to what they want to do or do people do what God wants them to do? When we talk about this issue, we use phrases like free will or election or predestination. Well, how does 2 Samuel 17 help us here? Do people do what they want to do or do people do what God wants them to do? And the answer according to 2 Samuel 17 is yes. There is no sense in which Absalom is compelled against his will. He is doing exactly what he wants. Hushai has appealed to his vanity and he walked into this trap gladly. But God had determined that it would be so. As Ephesians 1.11 says, God works out everything in conformity with the purposes of his will. Absalom's will, God's will, they're both at work in this passage. Do you know why both of them are at work in this passage? Because God has woven into the universe this rule. You reap what you sow. And, and in 2 Samuel, God is actively ensuring that everyone here, everyone in this room sees that and knows that. You reap what you sow. If you sow rebellion, you reap chaos. Now let's move on. We're going to, move, we're going to spend less time on the, on the points that are to come. Uh, point number two, when you sow human wisdom, you reap despair. When you sow human wisdom, you reap despair. One verse, 2 Samuel 17:23. When Ahithophel saw that his advice had not been followed, he saddled his donkey and set out for his house in his hometown. He put his house in order and then hanged himself, so he died and was buried in his father's tomb. This is not a passage about the ethics of suicide, but this very shrewd man here sees that there's no hope for him now. Absalom is giving away the only advantage he has, and David is going to prevail. No one has ever beaten David before in a battlefield. Absalom's not going to do it with his grand battle plan that he's going to follow. And Ahithophel knows he's nothing but a traitor. There is no hope for him. He's going to go home and kill himself. By telling you this story about what happened to Ahithophel, 2 Samuel is very subtly here critiquing human wisdom, human wisdom that is not informed by divine revelation. Follow me here for a minute. There's, there's two wise men that we have encountered in the last few weeks in 2 Samuel. One of them is Jonadab back in chapter 13. Do you remember he, he was a very wise man, the text says. And he was the one who gave Amnon the plan to get alone with Tamar, his sister. That did not work very well. And here's Ahithophel. Well, Jonadab's plan worked perfectly. Uh, the consequences of it were terrible. Here's Ahithophel. Both of these men, Jonadab and Ahithophel, gave really good advice, divorced from any sense of God's will or God's ways, and both of them brought nothing but sorrow and ruin. Very subtle critique in the book of 2 Samuel about human wisdom that is divorced from divine revelation. Another way that the author critiques this, this um, godless wisdom, is by contrasting David and Absalom. When David has a problem, what does he do? He seeks help from God through the priest. Uh, the priest with the, uh, the Urim and the Thummim can tell him, can help him. What should I do? Uh, I'm looking for help from God. What does Absalom do when he has trouble? He goes immediately to wise people, not God. 
Now listen, I'm very grateful for human wisdom. I'm very grateful for it. It's often helpful. Solomon himself imparted, uh, incorporated a lot of Egyptian proverbs into the Bible's book of Proverbs. I'm thankful for scientists and thinkers who are not Christians and do not explicitly think like Christians, but human wisdom is limited. And when human wisdom is all you have, it is a philosophy of death and despair. I I think that this subtle critique here in 2 Samuel should be a great encouragement to those of you who are investing in homeschooling or sending your children to a Christian school. I haven't been controversial in a while. Let's talk about this, shall we? Remember, brothers and sisters, we have different convictions, don't we, about our practices regarding the schooling of our children. And, and we have men and women in our church for whom I am very grateful who uh, invest in all three forms of education. They homeschool or they teach in public schools or they teach in private schools. One of the reasons that we don't fight about this in our church is because we recognize that there are pros and cons to every uh, choice, each one of these choices. Right? Now here's one of the pros of those of you who are investing explicitly in Christian education. It does not divorce divine revelation from learning. It, it keeps them together according to the divine design in this world that God created. I want to press this a bit further. I want to, I want to affirm what some of you are doing, the investments that you're making, all the time and the money that you are spending on educating your children in, uh, uh, in, in this uh, ways of human wisdom and divine revelation together. You should be greatly encouraged, I think, by this passage. This Ahithophel's story is not one that you can put on a plaque, right? It's not a story that, that I don't think it would necessarily work very well for a graduation speech at Lancaster Christian School, okay? I'm not sure I would use that. But, but you should be encouraged, encouraged by this story, in, in, our, in our public and secular schools, I, I'm, I'm grateful, again, for the teachers who are there who are representing Christ. I'm so grateful. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I was at the Manor Middle School, and I was volunteering with something, and I introduced myself to a teacher, and he said, Divini, your last name is Divini. I said, yes. He said, do you know Dan Divini? And I said, yes. <laughs> no, I did not say that. I did not say that. did not say that. He said, yeah, he's my cousin. He said, oh, our church, Central Manor Church of God is where he goes. Our church is going to start supporting them, Dan and Lisa, and the work they're doing. I said, that's great. And I'm grateful for this, this, this teacher who's in that school there for Christ's sake serve. I'm grateful for him. But recognize he teaches in an environment that just by its very nature divorces, it must, divine revelation from learning. In in public schools, our children learn about the sun and moon without reference to, sometimes in denial of, the one who called the sun and moon into existence. They learn about the path of nations throughout history without any reference to the God who appointed those nations to their times and set the boundaries where they live. They, They learn one form of reality that is divorced from ultimate reality. It's a terrible exercise in denial. Whether or not you realize that you're playing pretend, you are, you are living in a make-believe world where God doesn't matter if he exists at all. If you're wise, if you're wise, 
you will not allow that divorce to flourish in your home. You have a lot of uh, additional education to do in your home, a lot of corrections to do in your home. Now let's move on, shall we? This is more positive here, more positive. More positive sowing and reaping. When you sow submission, you reap mercy. When you sow submission to God, you reap his mercy. Let's read the rest of the chapter, shall we? Verse 23. When Ahithophel... um, Nope, sorry, let's try verse 24. David went to Mahanaim and Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. uh, Is that where I want to read? Um, Yes, it is. Okay, sorry. uh, I'll start again in verse 24 because I distracted myself, apparently. David went to Mahanaim and Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. Absalom had appointed Amasa over the army in place of Joab. Amasa was the son of Jether, an Ishmaelite, who had married Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, and sister of Zeruah, the mother of Joab. Now, if you're following all that, Absalom's army general is... Joab's cousin, David's nephew. Family troubles. Like reading Dynasty in the Bible. Verse, if you know what that is, you shouldn't laugh. You should be ashamed. Okay, verse 26. <laughs> the Israelites and Absalom camped in the land of Gilead. Verse 27. When David came to Mahanaim, Shobi son of Nahash from Rabbah of the Ammonites, and Machir son of Amiel from Lodabar, and Barzal. Barzillai, the Gileadite from Rogalim, brought bedding and bowls and articles of pottery. They also brought wheat and barley, flour and roasted grain, beans and lentils, honey and curds, sheep and cheese from cow's milk for David and his people to eat. For they said, the people have become exhausted and hungry and thirsty in the wilderness. Now here's my point. Uh, God is in the process of disciplining David and at the same time he is delivering David. Here he provides for him. He, he already provided for him by confusing Absalom, and now he brings David food. Psalm 23, 5, You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Isn't that what God is doing? What he is, he's doing for, for David right now? In God's wrath, David has remembered, uh, in his wrath, actually, God has remembered to be merciful to David. David is submitting to what God has decreed and in the midst of it, he's finding relief. Not complete deliverance, not a perfect life, but enough. Food, water, rest, a little bit of peace and a little bit of breathing room. Can you put these things together? God's discipline of David and God's deliverance of David. Both of these things are happening in this chapter. Follow me here for a minute. David is the best king the Israelites ever produced. He was a man after God's own heart. He was a valiant warrior. He was undefeated on the battlefield. He was a skilled writer. We read his psalms, all these songs that he wrote. He was good-looking. He was a loyal friend, and yet he's not enough. He's not perfect. He's not good enough. He cannot be the Savior that the nation needs. He's an adulterer and a murderer. They need a different Savior. Why is this story told in such particular detail? I think it's here to tell us that even David, the best that we can produce, the best that human beings can produce, even David needs a Savior. There's no hope that we human beings are going to make somebody who who, who is as good as David. I read a couple articles this week. Will there be another Billy Graham? We don't know. I don't, I don't think we're going to get as good as David. 
There is, there is no hope that we human beings can produce anyone who can reach into heaven and bring it down the earth to earth. David is the best that we can do. If we are going to be rescued, we need someone else. And the good news of this passage is that God is merciful to send the Savior that we need. All of the signs of God's mercy, all the signs of his deliverance are here. Confusing Absalom, sending food, preserving David's throne, even sending him back to Jerusalem. God is rich in mercy. Even David needs a Savior. And there is a Savior. It's David's own son, clearly not Absalom. Absalom is not that son. There's a son several generations removed, Jesus himself. And God, in his mercy, allows us to reap what Jesus has sown. Right? I sowed all of the sin, and Jesus reaped all of the wrath on the cross when he died for us. He sowed all of the obedience to God, and I reap by sharing in all of his blessings. Submission. You sow submission, you reap mercy. It is always the best choice to submit to God, regardless of the circumstances you're in, because God's mercy, His great mercy, soothes the severity of sowing and reaping. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning, and this is a a stark and dark story. Uh, And yet it is one that is, uh, there's comfort, there's relief in the midst of it. Father, I thank you. Uh, We're learning so much about how you work in people's lives. You have multifaceted purposes. You accomplish things across a broad swath of people at the same time. you, You just do marvelous work you accomplish all of the purposes of your will you disciplined and delivered david at the same time lord uh, i pray that you would help us to submit to you knowing these things about you your wise and good and perfect and just plans Father, I I thank you that you have not left us to our own devices, but you have given us your word. We're not left just to human wisdom, but we have from you what you have spoken. I pray that you would enable us by your grace to submit to it gladly and find the sweet reserves of your mercy. We pray these things together in Christ's name saying, Amen.